Welcome to the NHSR podcast. This is another in our series of occasional when we feel like it newscasts. It'll come out, I hope, pretty soon. The day of recording is the 28th of October. So if you're listening to this for the first time, I don't know who NHSR community are. We are a community of data scientists and analysts in uh, UK health and social care. We like to use open source data science tools, especially R, which is hence the name. But we're very friendly towards other data science tools as well, such as Python. And indeed, we are great friends with the NHS PyCom community. And the other thing we like to do, other than use open source tools, is we like to share our analytic code. And indeed, we have a very uh, well-stocked GitHub. So we have two Toms on the podcast today, other than myself. I'll introduce myself first. My name's Chris Bealey. I'm a data scientist. I work at Nottinghamshire Healthcare NHS Trust. And I'm the co-chair of the NHSR Technical Advisory Group. We have two Toms today, Tom Jemmett, probably calling Tom Jay later, and Tom Smith. So, Tom Jay, do you want to introduce yourself first? Yeah, I'm Tom Jemmett. I work at the Strategy Unit. I am a data scientist there. And Tom Smith. Hi, yeah, I'm Tom Smith. I work at Nottingham University Hospitals, and I'm an insight manager in the Family Health Division. Great. Thanks very much. Right, well, let's kick off then. So, the first item on the agenda today, oh, yes, and just to say, as always, we'll be making a blog post with all of the relevant bits of news uh, and links in on the NHSR website. So, if you can't be bothered to listen to the podcast, or if you want to refer to any extra material after you've done so, look in either in the show notes of this podcast or look on the blog and it'll all be there. Um, so the first item is just to, uh, I think we mentioned it last time, if memory serves, but all just to mention the NHSR conference again. So the NHSR conference is, I'm realising my horror, I didn't look at the exact date, 16th and 17th of November, I think. Let me just check. That's right. Uh, it's in Birmingham and tickets are available now. So they are free to uh, UK public sector organisations in person. And I believe there are also virtual tickets also available for free. There are still in-person tickets going. The virtual event will be excellent, I'm sure. We will obviously have been virtual the last couple of years because of COVID. Um, but if you are able to make the in-person events, then please do uh, come along to the website. I'll, we'll again post the link in the show notes and have a look. It'll be really nice to see everyone again. It's a very enthusiastic atmosphere at the conference. And there will be Tom, Jay and I actually are the sort of unofficial social committee. And there will be something to do that's fun that we don't quite know what it is yet, but will probably involve some mix of food, alcohol and things that are not alcohol for people like me who don't drink. Um, so do come along and meet other people. The other thing about the conference this year is that there's a Python track as well. So if you're interested in learning more about Python or you want to rub shoulders with Python people or you want to kind of meet them and see what's going on in the world of Python, our very great friends at NHS PyCon will be there too. So again, that's an excellent reason to come along just maybe poke your head in the in the Python door every so often if you're not, you know, fully committed to the idea. I personally will probably be spending quite a lot of room in the Python track, but it's a great way of, of, of having a taste of what's going on in that world. So, Tom, Jay, I believe you're coming. I will be, yeah. I, I should be there for both days. I think I'm, either me or someone else in our team is going to be presenting on the first day. We, we haven't quite ironed out the details yet, considering it's only, what, two weeks away. <laughs> Yeah, I'll be there and I'll be at the um, the social um, event in the evening. Looking forward to getting out and then meeting friends again, older than me. Yeah, ditto. I'm looking forward to going. Um, it looks like I'm going to be going on the Wednesday now. And I'm hoping to bring a couple of other people from our trust along as well, just to help them get a bit of a taster of of the community. And it's going to be the first time I've met anyone in person because, um, I've you know, it's all COVID, isn't it? So, yeah, it's going to be great. Oh, you're cool. Because I thought last time we spoke, we spoke on the podcast, didn't we, Thomas? And you said you were you were virtual, but you're physical now, are you? Uh, it looks like, yeah, Wednesday, I'm going to be able to get down for for Wednesday and then hopefully for the social afterwards. So, yeah. 
Excellent. Oh, yes. And that's another thing to say. Yes, of course, this is a two-day conference. I think, quite honestly, my, the vibe I'm getting is that people want to come, but their managers are maybe not springing for hotels. That's the vibe I'm guessing. Uh, so do come along for one day. The Python track is only one day. Um, so certainly if you're interested in Python, you want to poke your head in the door um, or meet some of the people, then I think coming down for that one day would also be very useful. So do have a look at the website. Um, and you can come and meet all of us and ask us, well, you can berate us for all the things we're going to get wrong in the, in the later parts of this podcast or in previous podcasts. Right now, we're going to come on to a subject we tackled, I think, last time. We were talking about um, linting, and Tom Jemmett has decided to give us a bit of a, of a masterclass, Tom. So take it away. Yeah, so I think last time we kind of touched a, a little bit on what linting is, um, but to give a bit more of a, a full kind of um, flavour of linting, it's really what we'd call static code analysis. So imagine that you've wrote thousands of lines of code, you're writing a complete program and um, you want to find out if there's errors in it. Well, the one way to find errors is to just simply run the program. Um, and if if it reaches a, a point where there's some error, it'll stop, it'll shout at you, and then um, you'll look at your code and try and figure out what's going on. But there's kind of two classes of problems that can arise in, in general. There's there's one where you, you've just made a mistake, like you've got a variable called, I don't know, height, and you've accidentally spelt it H-I-E-G-H-T somewhere. And when it reaches that line of code, it goes, I can't find this variable. Now that's a kind of error that can be detected before you even run the code, what we'd call static analysis. Just simply looking through the code, something automated could pick up and say, you're trying to use a variable that's never been defined here. So that's what one of the things that linting does. It, it runs through and it will check all these like little things that can arise. You, you can detect you know, various different classes of books. You know, there's hundreds and hundreds of different, what they call linters in the, the lintar package. I believe Google have recently contributed a, a ton more as well, which I've not really looked into, but the, the base options cover a load of errors that can just arise in general in programming. Um, and the other thing that I kind of touched on last time is the, the more kind of, um, are you adhering to a coding style? So just making sure that, you know, you, you've not got lines that go to hundreds and hundreds of characters. It's, it's, it's split up nicely. Um, you're following rules that are defined maybe like if you've got the assignment character, so you've got maybe X, and then the, the less than sign arrow, um, and then, I don't know, three as your value. It'll make sure that you've got a space before the less than sign and after the dash sign. And it'll make sure you've only got one at the space and not two and things like that. So linting is just a really great tool to help you pick up on errors, improve your code style, and just generally write better code. Now, the, the easiest way of using the Lintar package is to install it as a package. So you do usual install.packages Lintar. And then if you're using GarStudio, um, you'll have the add-ins menu. And you can click on that and type in Lint, and it'll give you a couple of options. So if I'm just looking now on my screen, if I type in Lint, um, I've got Lint current file or Lint current package. So if you're writing a package, you can get it to run through all the files in your package. But yeah, if you're just writing a a little a single script you're not um, doing um, package development it'll, it'll work fine on a single package as well and when you run that it's going to run through your file and then it'll open up another tab in RStudio, studio usually next to the console and i think it's called markers 
and it'll just give you a big long list of all the things that you can change. And I think it usually has um, three different kind of levels of um, warning that it can give you. It can give you like a little information. It can give you a warning, and it can give you a full error that this is going to be a problem. And um, so it's a really useful tool to start using. But it can become a bit more powerful. Like if instead of having to remember to run this um, each time that you you may change your file, if it can do it automatically. So. One thing that I've become aware of recently um, that I've not actually got around to using it yet, um, and it'll be linked in the show notes, there are additional diagnostic tools that you can enable in RStudio. So just in your usual kind of um, tools, uh, global options, um, and then under the code tab, there's a diagnostics page under that. And there's just a load of things there about warn if a variable has no definition in scope. So that's that issue of I've used a variable that doesn't yet exist. Warn if a variable is defined but not used. So that's not going to be an error, but that's a, one of those kind of code smells that you've made a variable, but you're never using it. Have you given it the wrong name or is it completely redundant? So yeah, really useful tips to kind of have a look through. If you're using VS Code instead of RStudio, you can enable linting in that. Again, I'll, I'll link it in the show notes. But it's really powerful because it's constantly giving you feedback as to this doesn't look right here. Um, yeah. Um, the kind of final um, option and what we've done in some of the packages like the NHSR plot the dots is to use, if using GitHub, you can use actions. So then every time that we commit a, a, a file and push it, um, well, try to do a pull request, sorry, it's going to run that link for us and it will bring up all of the kind of warnings within the, the merge. So if you've got errors, it's going to straight away warn you this code doesn't run. And then it can give you the other bits of information, like perhaps you should change this thing just to make it more set in line with the rest of our code. So yeah, I, it, it's one of those really powerful tools that I think programmers uh, in general, software developers will be using all the time. But it doesn't feel as widely known in the um, the R community. So something that I constantly want to shout about, like use linting, it's great. It will make your life much much more pleasant and enjoyable. Yes, well, I've never used linting, and I should have done, uh, and I still haven't actually. Even after uh, Tom uh, Thomas eloquently put the the need for it uh, last time. I think the thing to say if you're listening to this and you're a beginner is probably some of it doesn't sound very important. I know often when I look at beginner's codes, it's quite, there isn't a lot of style. It's kind of all lumped together and it's quite uneven. And I think you don't really notice that. But as you get better and better, you'll want to be kind of reading code. That's the thing is it flows nicely. And I think if you think about, you think about like normal text, I think that people kind of suspend that when they're writing code, they just write it any old way um, because the computer's not bothered. But you'll find when you come back to your own code that you're bothered. And these sort of weird lumpen shapes that you get in your code actually make it quite hard to read. Um, and I think the other thing is that the, what was Tom talking about with the static analysis and the variable names and all that kind of thing. Again, I think it doesn't sound important because maybe beginners are writing sort of 15, 20 lines of code and they're not making these kind of mistakes where they're misspelling things because, you know, they're, they're sweating over each line. I know when I started learning, I was, you know, it would take me half an hour to write three lines. Um, but as you get quicker and quicker and quicker, these mistakes kind of creep in. There's a great expression. I have no idea who said it, but they said something like um, code isn't just it isn't typing. And I think when you're when you're beginning, it does feel like typing. It does feel like it's very laborious kind of error-prone procedure. 
But as you get better and better, you kind of want to be flying through that stuff. You want to be able to read your code. You want other people to be able to read it as well. That's the other thing. You want to, be able to work in a team. And you want to be able to skip over these kind of mistakes. Length. I think that's an absolute classic thing that everyone always mis- everyone always spells it L-E-N. What is it? L-E-N-H-G. And this is, you know, that's the kind of tool that can just kind of get you through that stuff. So it's definitely, it's definitely well worth a look. I think as he's touched on their styling, that, that's one of the biggest things that I think is like, it can improve your code knowing by almost minimal effort, just formatting your code neatly. It makes it so much easier for yourself and other people to read in the future. And biggest kind of thing that you can use to improve your style is the Stylar package, because you can install it. It's an add-in in our studio then, and you just go, style my file for me, and it will write it in its own kind of opinionated form for you. You don't need to then worry about how to, how many you know, tabs you're indenting by or spacing after lines and things like that. It'll just clean it all up for you. And it, it's one of those things that, yeah, you, you could spend hours neatly formatting your own code, or you could just let the computer do it for you. You've you mentioned two packages there, Lintar and Stylar, and I don't think I'd really twig, but we use them both in NHR plot the dots, don't we? But they are actually doing slightly different things, which um, I hadn't quite appreciated. I need to get closer to it. Do they edit the file then? Do they put the corrections in or do they just recommend, you know, a, a change based on what they're seeing? So Lintar is only analysing your code. It's it's going to tell you about the errors, the issues, um, of, you know, suggestions. Um, some of the suggestions that it's using are the style guidelines in um, various different forms. So the, the one that it defaults to is the tidyverse style guide, um, which it, it's a relatively short document, um, you know, c- a couple of pages. Um, you can probably read it in half an hour to an hour, and it it will explain, you know, how the tidyverse guys format all their code and how they recommend perhaps you should format your code. So that's what the um, the Lintar package is doing. It's, it's running through the suggestions on that. Um, what Stylar does is it will apply those kind of things to your code. Now, it will only work if your code doesn't contain obvious errors, you know, maybe a, a mismatched um, parenthesis or bracket, things like that. Um, if you've got issues like that, Stylar is probably going to break. Same with Lintar. If you've got major issues like that, it's going to break. But yeah, Stylar will take your files and rewrite them. So I think Stylar gives you a big warning afterwards, like, yeah, make sure that this is um, not changed things um, that, that you're not expecting. So it's, it's a, a, another good reason for using GIFs. Like, if you've got everything in version control, you can save your change, you can run Stylar, and then you can go, ah, that's the change that it's made. That's a great point. You know, we should talk about Git sometime as well, shouldn't we? I'm going to put that in the, on the deck for next, because I think there are lots of people out there who are curious about Git, but don't quite know how powerful it can be. Right, Tom, you were going to talk about structuring stuff. Thomas, sorry, you were going to talk about structuring things. This, this came up, um, this is sort of a little window into the evolution of, you know, my journey through learning R, really, because I'm I'm about two years into sort of using R in anger. And um, it's fair to say over that period, the way that I do my work has changed quite considerably. And I just, I suspect other people are on the same journey. And the most recent change, I'll come to at the end, but it's a bit of a eureka moment for me. Um, so I just thought I'd, I'd sort of trace that journey out, really. There are lots of different ways of running code. And the most simple one is in the console. And so in, in our studio, that's the, the console is the bottom left corner if you've got everything default. 
and you can literally type one plus one and hit return and it's going to give you the answer so you can run code line by line the next step on from that is obviously saving that set of um uh, that that code into a into a script so you know hello.r or you know project1.r or something um and then you can run through each line in your in your code in sequence um and that's how i began and i was what i found is you you start that way and then you you start needing to read data files and write data files and so you start needing to kind of set your working directory and you and set paths in order to read other files in in other parts of your of your computer and um anyway i tied myself in knots pretty quickly and um that's when i realized that there's another step on from that which is the project so one of the things that our studio allows you to do is to configure your work in what they call projects which are basically sort of self-contained units of code where you don't have to worry about kind of setting working directories anymore because the root of your project is always the the root of the the project directory and um, every file path then becomes sort of a relative file path so if you want to go to uh, read some data you quite normally well, i have a, a data subfolder in, in my project and, and read that in i often have an output folder in my project directory so that's where i kind of putting um, output files and markdown documents and HTML that, that's an output and things like that. So um, that's the way that I've been running for the bulk of the time that I've been using R. And my eureka moment was more recently starting to structure projects as packages. And this is really quite new to me, um, but I'm finding it really, really helpful. So when I st structuring all your work in a, in a project, which is the way I've been doing for most of the time, is great but when you're writing functions i found i was having to do quite a lot of boilerplate at the start of projects to read those functions in so putting functions in their own files and then making sure that you you source those files at the top of your script making sure that they're sourced in the right order so that if if they're interdependent at all which they probably shouldn't be but anyway you know we're all learning so they might be um you're sourcing them at the top of the script and there's just quite a lot of typing to do just to get things linked up um so having moved now to sort of projects as packages um you don't need to worry about all that because if as long as you're adhering to the the way that the the package should be structured so effectively all your functions go into a folder called r um when you reload the package um that's all read in and handled for you um, so actually, your your analysis script becomes suddenly a lot cleaner because you the packages you need to use that you've written are all automatically available, um, and you can just get stuck straight into the analysis. Um, and as I say, a bit of a eureka moment for me. And the, the other major major benefit is um, it works really well with testing as well. So there's the test app package which allows you to make assertions about what your functions should and shouldn't be doing. And as I've started to write code that I lean on more heavily at, at work, um, I've found it more and more important to know that my code is behaving the way that I think it's behaving. Um, and so I've started to incorporate a little bit of testing in some of just my normal analysis code. And um, I found that in incredibly useful. And, and again, if you structure your projects in packages, that comes out of the box, basically. You can start writing test that assertions and, and testing little functions as you go. And it allows me to sleep much better at night, honestly, honestly speaking, because I know that things are working the way they should. And if I modify something and it bro breaks, my, my console screams at me and, and doesn't let me carry on until I've fixed it. So it's, it's a lot of peace of mind as well. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to 
trace that journey out and maybe ask you guys you know how how do you do it and does any of that sound familiar and um how do you typically structure your projects when you're working on things i'm always using um our studio projects now i I think i had this this point in time where i was writing a lot of little scripts you know one-off questions and i was just using um the kind of empty no project for that and maybe saving scripts if i felt like i might use it again in the future and I was finding that I was often just creating scripts and chucking them away and then being asked the exact same question a day or two later. So, yeah. And, and even if I was like saving the script, I'd end up with lots of different things. I might have had a question about um, A&E activity. I might have had a question about um, cardiology or something. This is when I was working in a, an acute crisis trust. And it was kind of at that point where I was like, if I created a project that I could just dump each of those different kind of related things in. I've got that little button at the top of our studio that I can click and change into a project and get all of my related stuff together and more easily navigate through things. I think as well with package um, projects as packages, that took a lot bit more convincing for me to kind of start getting to that. One of the big things really was starting to use Golem for shiny packages, uh, well, shiny projects, um, and that kind of forced you into using it a package so yeah that was kind of more just i was pushed into a corner by deciding to use golem i was writing a package because that's how golem structures your code and i'm not always using packages uh, for other projects but i think it's definitely something that people should consider using the the, the big revelation for me was um the, the function from dev tools um load all so you can just run that and it it will automatically reload all of the codes in your um, environment so you don't have to go through and source each individual file if you've you know, split all of your code up into different files. You can just use DevTools reload load all, and it will unload the package, reload it all. I think the, the, the thing that changed it in my mind there was that I, I, I'm creating a package, but I don't ever have to think of this being something that I'm pushing to cram. You can write a package that is purely going to be for your own consumption or your own team's consumption. Um, it, it, you don't have to think along those lines of, this is something that I'm going to publish onto a, a, a repository like Cran. Yeah, hopefully you're going to release it publicly onto GitHub. Maybe you could private, but it, yeah, there's, there's tools in like the DevTools package and use this that make package development and it's yeah, so easy to do nowadays. Yeah, I'm the same. I was <clears throat> my gate, gateway drug to package development was um, Golem as well because. I wanted to use Golem. I'd never written a package in my life. So I wrote a really simple package that did something stupid on a train. And then I used Golem and I haven't looked back. Um, I think the thing about packaging for me particularly is the sort of team aspect and reusing code. So I've got a horror story. I'm going to be retelling. I've already retold this story, I think, twice already. And it only happened about a month ago. I think I'm going to be retelling it for the next 15 years. Is that I think what sometimes happens and what I've done in the past is somebody writes a bit of code like, you know, six lines of code that does something or other, something clever. And the next time it just pe- gets passed around, it gets sort of emailed around. I think probably people listening will probably will recognize this. Um, and it may have been wrong in the first place. You know, the, the, the original code may be wrong, but actually it may be kind of, it was originally right, but then you use it for something slightly else, and then you you think it's for something else, and then you pass it on to someone else. And the, you get these sort of Chinese whispers of code where it just sort of gets, oh, this is for the, this is the thing that does this. Here it is. And you and you don't quite know how it works because you didn't write it and you just use it. And I was in this exactly the same situation myself very recently. 
and I just wasn't. I try to be very skeptical these days. I'm trying to be very oriented about you know tests and reproducibility and stuff. And I was just like, I'm not sure about this. So we really all the whole team, all three of us, really kind of dug in for a long time to check. And it, basically, what we found is, I think it did sort of work for the original purpose that it was done, but it, it did not at all stand up to being generalized in the way that I was trying to generalize it. And it did the classic thing where it produced an answer. So it didn't fail, but it produced an answer that was that was horribly wrong. Um, and we spent a very, very long time trying to figure out the correct way to do it. That will, I think the other thing is generalizability as well. People often write code that works on that day for, for something. But then you think, oh, well, that's fine. I'll just use it. But it actually doesn't work for your purpose. So we spent a very long time on this, actually. And now we have a beautiful function that we all have access to that works for as far as we know, works for all of the cases that you can throw at it. And I, you know, as I say, I should be retelling that story, I think, until I retire, because I think it really illustrates, certainly that, that that's my journey, really. That's all, I think that's what we're all saying as well, is that we've all started kind of hacking stuff together, haven't we? You try to end up being a, um, doing it better. But I think as a system as well, I think we're working that way. You know, the, the with the dawn of, you know, reproduce lines called pipelines and teams and working in this way, I think... The whole system is waking up to this idea that just passing around 10 lines of SQL round around a team is not enough anymore. And we need to record stuff. We need to test stuff. We need to document stuff. We need to version control stuff. That's that's kind of the thing. Yeah, it was, it's the tests that did it for me. There's so much peace of mind in tests because exactly that. It, I've, you write a piece of code once, it, it works for what you originally wanted it to do. But then what happens if, you know, if, if if it's a minor, you know, if it's a negative number that goes in or whatever, if it, if it works for for negative numbers and positive numbers, but what happens if it's zero? You know, what's coming out then? And it's surprising actually how little you need, how few tests you need to add in to safeguard yourself from those little edge cases. And and actually, once you've safeguarded yourself from the little edge cases in the small bits of the package, it's amazing how much safer the whole thing feels. But um, anyway, yes, that's my my experience, and it's it's um, encouraging to hear that you've both been on the same journey as well. You'll hear lots about this as well, I would think, at the, uh, the just to plug the conference again, there'll be lots of, at the conference last time, there were lots of people talking about good um, good practice as far as this kind of stuff goes. Uh, and this will, I think, be the Reproduce Mindical Pipeline conference as well. That seems to be where a lot of papers are going. Um, so if you're interested in getting the right answer every time, which I think we all should be, uh, then do come along to the conference. Okay, right. So I just wanted to mention, I'm only going to do this quickly, but I wanted to mention software licensing for two reasons. The one, because I was talking about it on Slack the other day, I thought it was rather interesting. Um, and also because people don't really understand it, to be honest. I seem to be the guy that understands software licensing, which is pretty terrifying because I know almost nothing about software licensing, but I'm often the person in the room who knows the most about it. So it's just interesting. So we, in the NHSR community, we have a, a solutions program where we will fund, there's a very small amount of funding available for each project and we'll fund things. And the idea is they have to be open source. And I just happened to notice that that one of them was, um, was GPL licensed, I suppose, that MIT licensed. And I just kind of mentioned on the Slack, just to point out the difference to people, just because I thought it was interesting and I had a bit of a conversation. I just thought I'd mention it on the podcast, just for the uninitiated. So MIT and GPL, they're both, I mean, I would say they're both sort of recommended by the 
by the solutions program we, we do mainly recommend mit partly because that's the nhsx's uh their open source uh, guidance which i'll put in the show notes that's their recommended license um just very quickly the difference um so mit is what is called a, per- a permissive license so what that means is you can do anything with it pretty much so you can take the code we imagine this something on nhsr solutions has been produced and microsoft can come along and pick up that code and stick it in excel and sell it to people um and that's basically what a permissive license means. That's what the word permissive is doing in that sentence. It means you can just do what, what you like, basically. GPL um, is different. A GPL is what's called a copyleft license. Uh, copyleft licenses are open source in the sense that you can reuse the code. You're absolutely free to do that. And you're free, in fact, to charge money for the code as well. That's one of the fundamental freedoms of software. Um, but the difference is that if you do use GPL code, you have to open all of the code in the, the that uses that code. So, for example, if I wrote some GPL code and Microsoft came along, uh, I don't know why Microsoft is stealing my code because it's terrible, but just imagine they did, um, and put it in Excel, they would then have to open up all of the code for Excel. It was memory described by some person in Microsoft. I can't remember who it was. I don't think it was Bill Gates. I think it was another senior person. The GPL is like a virus. That's what they said. And it is sort of like a virus. I consider that to be a good thing. I think Microsoft meant it as a bad thing. Uh, It infects software. It infects proprietary software with openness. And uh, it forces the whole code back. So obviously, Microsoft would never put that in Excel because that would completely undermine their entire business model. Um, So it's just a a sort of cautionary tale. I mean, the message that came back on Slack was it doesn't really matter because we're not distributing the code. This only applies to code that's that's being redistributed. Um, And if you're not distributing this GPL code, it doesn't matter because the terms of the licenses aren't enforced, which is, of course, very true. but it's just worth knowing, and I, I suppose the other cautionary tale, the other message that I'd send out is it's always worth checking the license. Before you start using something, first check that there is a license at all, and secondly, just have a look at what the license is. There are lots of licenses. There are not just MIT and GPL, especially outside the NHS Solutions Program. There'll be all sorts of – there's license, don't be evil, non-commercial, you know, all sorts of things. Um, and you need to know if you're going to use something, you're going to start writing code with it. You don't want to realize in six months that you can't do anything with it. So it's always worth making sure that you do. Last thing to say, I'll put this in the show notes. Very interesting. The Tidyverse was recently relicensed to MIT for a similar reason than what I'm talking about. They wanted to simplify licensing and they wanted to reassure people that they could reuse the code freely. So they undertook a very large project to take all of the all of the packages in the Tidyverse and relicense them to MIT. Uh, it's a very interesting blog post. So we'll pop that in the show notes. Right. We don't have a huge amount of time left in the podcast. So I wonder if we've had a question come in about programming and hosting shiny applications. I think the internet's sick to death of hearing me talk about that. So I thought it might be fun to have Tom Gemmett talk about it. So we did have a question about, you know, when we've written a shiny application, what do we do with it? So I wonder, Tom, if you could just uh, say a bit about that. Yeah. So we start developing shiny apps and we run them on our own computer and we're quite happy with what they're doing. And then we, we want to put them somewhere so other people can view them. And we've got a couple of, issues largely around hosting them because you need to be able to run the shiny server software now whether you're using um shiny server which is just a kind of standalone um application i've never actually used that so chris might look at me and correct me in a second but you load it up onto a server kind of deploy your shiny apps that and run it it's a open source and free to use bit of software from our studio it comes with a yeah, a lot of limitations. Um, it doesn't have any kind of authentication built into it or niceties that you might need, depending on what type of content you're hosting. So their commercial offering is RStudio Connect, which you have to pay a license fee for. And you know, that then 
you'd be hosting, again, it's got to be on a Linux server that you're going to have to have someone probably in your IT department configure and run for you. And that, that can be problematic, especially as a lot of IT departments possibly don't have the in-house Linux expertise in the NHS at least. So if you wanted to go down either of those two routes, one option that you could have is to look at some of the kind of um, commercial partners out there, um, kind of consultancy firms that specialise in Shiny, and they can often do um, hosted solutions for you. They'll, they'll come in, talk with your IT department and get access to your network infrastructure, whatever that might be, um, you know, if you're hosting it in Azure or um, Amazon's AWS, they can go in and set up all the service for you and configure it as needed. So those are some of the, the options, though. They take a bit of effort. Um, there's people probably in the NHSR community, like Chris and myself, that can help you through some issues. But yeah, you're probably going to need someone with Linux expertise within your organization or pay a consultancy for that. The, the, the easiest option, though, is shinyapps.io. So that's something that our studio offer. And it has a couple of tiers. The first kind of um, first option is free, and you can host up to five applications on that. And you can start going up to paid tiers where you get more applications. You can have authenticated users and things like that. The, the big issue on that is it's not hosted within the EU. I think they're hosted in AWS data centers in the US. So it's going to be great for kind of um, data that's already pre-aggregated and is non-sensitive in nature that your organization's happy to be publicly released but it's, it's a great way to get your toes dipped in the water yeah so there's no easy answers basically the drum that i always bang is that really the nhs does not really have a lot of linux experience that's the big problem we're very reliant on windows which is fine i think the data science world does feel quite linuxy in fact that's why i started using linux all those years ago is because i kept reading posts about people who made a package that didn't support Windows and someone would write in and say, oh, it doesn't really support Windows. And the person would say, I don't care, go away kind of thing, because that's just the way the, of the world. And again, if you look, you know, if you go to a, like a big kind of fancy data science conference, all, all the, they're all got Macs basically, uh, which is, you know, the set, equivalent in a, in a, in a backend sense. Yes. So you either need expertise or money. And uh, as far as Linux goes, I think the NHS has probably got neither. So I think that'd be the, the, the summary message there. Okay, right, we'll run out of time, so we will wrap up here. We've got loads of more to talk about that we didn't get a chance to, so we'll talk about that next time. We'll probably try and get one a bit out a bit sooner. We've all been a bit busy with holidays and whatnot. So to sign off, I will thank the guests, uh, Tom J and Tom S. Uh, Tom Jemmett himself will be doing the editing, so if he said any annoying things that he wants to get rid of, it would be very easy for him to do so because he's doing the edit. Um, so thanks to Tom for that. Um, we will put all the show notes uh, in the... Uh, we will put all the links sorry, in the show notes. We will also be uh, writing a little bit of a blog post to summarize everything that you've listened to. Then we do have an email address. So if you've got any questions or comments, you can certainly send in questions to the podcast if you want to hear about anything in particular. So that's nhs.rcommunity at nhs.net. But again, that'll be in the show notes. And we'll be back soon with a special interview um, as well. That's coming out very soon as well. And then we'll have another newscast in due course.